what if we were Paul today? We would insist that Black Lives Matter advocates, people who are advocates of critical race theory, would go to church with Southern whites who still think that Robert E. Lee was a hero. Uh, welcome, everyone, it. to the Faith hey, Recovery thanks. Podcast. Good to be back. It is good. This is uh, Alex, Nathan, and Kent, three failed pastors exploring the gospel. This isn't, yeah. We're in a series, yeah. Faith That Works, and today's episode, God is so meta. He is. What in the world? <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's not my fault. Meta it's is an, an allusion to meta-narrative, I assume. Sure. Or... Uh, Meta tags, formerly the company formerly known as Facebook, right? Yeah, right. Meta, right, right. Yeah. So people out there are thinking Facebook, but we mean meta narrative. We do, yeah. And a meta narrative is what? Yeah, it's this overarching narrative. So you have narrative, and then you have meta narrative. Meta, I guess it means what? Something that is above, occurring over, above, or yeah, yeah kind of uh, something that transverses multiple different things. So. Yeah, Facebook changed their name to Meta because they're going all in with VR. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of a, it's an overarching reality, I guess. Um, and that's the context. And so, but we were talking about Meta narrative because I think that's more important than Meta. Virtual reality virtual technology. Virtual reality stuff, yeah. Yeah. So story, right? Yeah. Yeah. It used to be really popular. Maybe it's just because I used to be in school that um, to talk about meta narratives. Yeah. And I feel like it went out of vogue, or is it maybe just I just left school? I don't know. I was going to say, but well, you, you were in, you, you went to school. <laughs> you were in a Christian school too. Yeah. So we were. You I know, went to seminary, and we talked about meta narratives. Yeah. Yeah, and it was a philosophical. It was of philosophical importance. To understand yes. meta narratives, to understand that all cultures operate under please a meta narrative, and people live for, their for lives. those of us that didn't go to seminary. Please explain yeah. meta narrative. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what we're groping at here, yeah. and I'm hoping Nathan's going to give us well, a definition. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> let me see if I can grope at it. Um, I don't like that. Yeah, yeah no. <laughs> Because okay. people, out, people, people in industry can't grope at anything. This makes the point, then, yeah. because in ordinary life, people don't talk about meta-narratives. Or groping. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they talk about that more than they do meta-narratives. <laughs> right, right, um, yeah. Well, we don't talk about meta narratives, but if we if we do, normally it is in a, a pejorative context in a postmodern world, because I, I think societies have narratives, and that's maybe where we'll start: is what is narrative, and why is narrative important? And so everybody has a narrative, just as we said, everybody has a worldview. Really, everybody has a narrative because worldviews come out of your narrative, um, and and we may not even know it because. We're constantly being saturated with narrative. We came up with narrative. Uh, we had narrative before we probably had language. Uh, mm -hmm. We could almost say that language is and thought is narrative. Uh, and I'll get into that in a minute. So, but, so there's narrative and then there's meta narrative. And um, so when we say societies have a meta narrative, well, it depends on how big the society is. They may not have a meta narrative, they may have a narrative. Meta narrative in, assumes that this is a narrative that is global. It's overarching that all other narratives either are invalidated by a meta narrative or they have to find their place within the meta narrative. Mm -hmm. So, you know, every individual might have a narrative. 
for their, their personal life. life story. Sure, but then as they enter society, that narrative has to somehow find its way into a narrative that's more meta, right? Um, and and because of that, that narrative may be invalidated. And so here we are in um, 21st century America, and we're trying to understand how does a narrative that says, um, let's say, family values, right? So the narrative is. Uh, a man and woman fall in love and they get married and they have children and the man goes off to work and you know the cleavers and the uh, nelsons if you're really old and all these other families that uh and so there's a narrative about family mm-hmm. that's that's there and and it undergirds what people call when people say family values what they what they mean is oftentimes at least when conservatives talk about family values they're talking about a family configuration that fits a narrative. Mm-hmm. And so when people talk about other sorts of family configurations, it is people say, well, that's those don't have those don't fit values. But what they really mean is they don't fit the narrative mm-hmm. and narratives can be very confining. And that's the pushback that we're getting now, you know, with a lot of the other stuff. Mm-hmm. So. So in that example, we've got. <clears throat> Maybe evangelical Christian view of, of family, family values, whatever you want to call that, that maybe had its birth in this uh, 1950s kind of nuclear family right. uh, model or whatever you want to call that. That's a narrative or a story that uh, the evangelical church has latched onto and continues to tell itself. Right. It, you know, this is uh, this is the way things should be. Um, maybe that worked better in the 1950s. Sure. When everything kind of looked that way. But now the world is a very different place. So there's naturally an incongruence there between that, that family values narrative and then the narrative that, or the meta narrative that we see within culture as a whole. So, right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, how do you, how do you change a narrative? Narratives are very powerful. They don't necessarily change. Like I said, if we've been, trained in something from a very early age we that narrative and language development and uh, the ability to think and the development of our brain they all kind of go together i was i was reading one um education specialist and and i can't remember who they were now but they were talking about how that the basis the unit of thought is what they called story engrams so if i visualize a dog that's not really a, a thought. Uh, but if I say, if I visualize the dog biting somebody, so there's, there's, uh, there's action that there, that we are wired for uh, subject predicate object mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. This is how we process mm-hmm. our reality. So a memory or a cohesive thought doesn't, really enter our minds we don't have anything to say until we have a subject predicate and an object then we may have something to say yeah i think the perfect corollary of that in our age is the meme yeah uh there's a reason that those are so popular because it's exactly what you're saying yes it's this this little bite-sized chunk of story Mm -hmm. it's just big enough to be coherent um but small enough to be transferable right between everybody everybody can share it and pick up immediately and kind of know what's going on and usually get some ha-has yeah. <laughs> out of the whole thing mm-hmm. yeah 
Well, and and with a meme, uh, it gets to meta narrative as well because uh, memes only become viral as they apply to a lot of people naturally. Yeah, and that is because they're very small. If they were very large or complex, the, the, with the greater degree of complexity, the the greater degree of alienation. You know, it's kind of like, don't you hate when uh, you get up in the morning and your dog is scratching at the door and you have to go out and feed him, but the dog food ran out because of the pandemic and now you have to find scraps and you know that stuff's still good in the fridge. The more complicated that gets, the less people identify, you know. So I've cut out everybody that doesn't own a dog. I've cut out everybody that doesn't feed their dog dry food. I've cut out everybody that um, isn't currently in this moment of supply chain. Um, but the simpler it is, now people can relate to it. And we'll get to that when we get to the gospel as meta narrative. Um, but the more confining it becomes now, if we say, well, everybody has to conform to this narrative, everybody has to buy it all, everybody has to serve them dry food, you know. Um, you see how that begins to limit people's choices and their freedoms, which is the case of um, postmodernism. Um, and we don't have this on the thing because I haven't gotten around to it, but postmodern postmoderns would take um, this idea of narrative and they would say, there is no truth, there's only narrative. Mm -hmm. And everyone is writing their own narrative and everyone's narrative is equally true for them. So the reason I think in school you talk so much about meta narrative is because your teachers were pushing back against postmodernism that may or may not have been mentioned or may or I may or may not be right with that. But meta narrative, really, the conversation about meta narrative came out of, say, 1960s, 1970s discussions about um, human thought, philosophy, culture, and we, be, you know, the what we what began to be questioned was could we say anything is objectively true if i say this is objectively true um so jesus died for your sins is objectively true well I, i'm invalidating your narrative say you grew up in a culture that you believe that god holds everybody accountable for their own personal sins and that they can earn their way out of their sin you have a narrative and it is part of who you authentically are it's how you were raised it's a part of your culture if i come in and say no sin is absolute and you can't buy god off and that somebody had to live a perfect life and die for your sins i am supplanting your individuality i'm undermining your culture and by what right do i do mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. so that when we talk about meta narrative it oftentimes is is described as a negative um, thing. So narrative can be, narrative can cause us to cohere, it can set values, but it also can divide people. Because if my narrative is different from your narrative, and you're absolutely sure. So let's take for instance, if you were to read the Ramayana, the uh, Hindu holy book story, and you saw that Rama is born, he's blue, he's super strong. Um, his destiny in life is to kill his stepmother who is an evil demon queen and he enlists the help of a monkey god who can grow to 50 feet tall when he wants to and they go to battle with this 
demon queen and they defeat her and they bring um, order to the third age in India. And you read that and you think, well, this is nonsense. But, it, you know, do you think it's nonsense because you weren't raised with it? Or, you know, if, if somebody else, as we were talking about earlier, coffee, if somebody else were to encounter our stories, the Christian stories, and they would think, they would weigh it probably equally, and they would say, this is equally nonsensical. Um, and is that just because we were raised that way? But all that to say is, is that the that narrative is so powerful that something that seems nonsensical can order your society. It can become woven into your identity as a human being. So if you go over to India and you try to proselytize people, you're quickly going to make enemies. Now you could say, well, why would you want to hold on to these stories? They, they're nonsensical. But for them, they're implicitly true, at least on some level. So all that to say is, is that they have their narrative, I have my narrative. How can we get along? How can we begin to live in a global village when their narrative is, competes with mine? And if theirs teaches that people are born into a caste and that they shouldn't rise out of it or attempt to rise out of it, what except does that through, say? Except through death and reincarnation. Right, right. So we get to things like, say, the UN Statement on Human Rights. And the UN Statement on Human Rights is going to say things like people have, in, have inherent dignity and worth and that they should be respected and that people should be given equal access to health care, to education. Okay, but if you live in, in a Hindu society, you may sign, the India, India may sign that because they want to be a part of the global village, but they're not going to do it. That Just because they signed this charter that says, hey, Western liberal values says that this is important, they're not going to go home and say all the Dalits are free and now they can, you know, we're going to build a college here in among the untouchables and we're going to have the Brahmins teach it and they're going to have to, they're going to pull everybody out and within two generations we will have a fully egalitarian society. That's not going to happen because they have a story. The same thing with Islam. You know, if Islam says that, uh, in, you know, especially in Islamic cultures that women are subservient, that Allah made them subservient to men. You can sign that declaration if you want. They're never, it's not going to, we go over and we try to impose democracy and stuff. But if your narrative says that all people are not created equal, how in the world are you going to ever have a democratic society? So that uh, narrative, it causes people to cohere in that you get one nation who all believes this, so the Dalits are just, they're not rising up and you know, killing all of the Brahmins and, and all of that. So that's good, I guess. But so you get conformity, mm -hmm. yeah. uh -huh. but you also repress people in the process yeah. to one and degree I, or another. And just for a little counterbalance, I, yeah. I'd say America does this all the time as well. Of course. <laughs> of course. I mean, you look at the two party system. What are we doing? Aren't, aren't we creating a narrative about what it means to be an American? What uh, we have each party, especially on the extremes, has a, has a story about America. So let's tell the Republican story of America. The Donald Trump story of America would go like what? Make America great again. Right. Well, that America was great. Yeah. There, so there was a former, former golden age, and we need to uh, get back to that right. thing. Right. But isn't that a great way to tell a story? 
you know. I mean, if you, if you were in Hollywood and you're writing a story about this kingdom where everyone was happy and everything was perfect and then mm-hmm. it was undermined and right. it was shattered and yeah. now who's the hero? The socialists came in and wrecked it and right. now we have a hero who's going to restore the greatness yes. of the kingdom. Right. And and behind that are are values like personal initiative, the Horatio Alger story. Babies, bullets, and borders. Hey, we worked it in, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, well, but, but what does that say? That says that if you want to, and hey, I, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit trail, but, it, but if your mentality is that America is this, this place of, of, of just the pinnacle of human society and everybody wants to come here, and... That is somewhat true. I'm not going to say that's false in that people around the world in the developing world would trade their arm to come to America. Mm-hmm. I've met them. And they, they hold American values higher than we do in many, many cases. They're like, you don't know what you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't, I don't want to say that that's not true. But at the same time, we would say we have it because we deserve it. If you would work harder... You wouldn't have to move here. That 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 sort of a thinking enters into very you know conservative, very rigid sorts of um, immigration policies. That we believe that people who are coming here um, mean to steal our lifestyle that we have earned and they haven't. And we built it and they didn't, and now they want it and they don't deserve it and we do but your point is that we don't actually have it because we deserve it we have it because of the narrative depends on whose narrative you're talking about i'm saying that's a narrative the narrative is we have it because we deserve it but somebody else may have a different narrative right so let's say you're an african-american in america and say you're an urban uh black person and what's your american story is it different mm-hmm <laughs> You know, I have a I have a friend who's from the South, from the Deep South, white guy, and a great guy, uh, and somebody who is not a racist. Like, even though he was in a very segregated society, he chose to go and be a member of the black churches. Just cross that line and say this is stupid. So this is the kind of progressive sort of a person that he is, and I think that the gospel made him even countercultural. Um, so I'm just going to say he's, he's from the Mississippi Delta, like way down in there. And, and, and we'd been friends for, I don't know, four or five years and he, and maybe longer. Uh, we've been friends a very long time. And, and he turned to me and said, you know, we've been friends all this time and we have never had a discussion about the civil war. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Uh-oh. dude, I went, went, I've never had a discussion with anybody about the civil war. Right, I right. don't talk about the civil war. Why was that odd to him? Well, he has a narrative. The South has a narrative exactly. about the Civil War, about how it was a matter of states' rights and not about um, slavery. And that's the narrative that Southerners tell about the Civil War. Exactly. So it's very fresh for them. If the South would have won, we'd have had it made, Hank Williams, right? But that's a narrative, isn't it? That, mm-hmm. that there was Northern aggression and that um, we were originally a nation that was a lot... Uh, looser connected that there were states rights and things like that and that that was all infringed upon by a power mad dictator in a tall hat <laughs> you know we see abraham lincoln as a, as a liberator people who are uh, we're uh, we're south of the mason dixon line but we're, we're part of the union here in northern arkansas 
But and so we see it as Abraham Lincoln is the hero of the story. People in the Deep South see Abraham Lincoln as the antagonist. So start tearing down all the Robert E. Lee statues. You're, it's really not for them in many cases about race. Right. It's about the dignity of the South and their cause. And right. But you yeah. see how divisive that is because there are people who say their states' rights cause. These these <laughs> rednecks are trying to raise up a monument to racism and. Um, so one p- part of that narrative is, is we have the right to tear down statues of Robert E. Lee or whoever, Stonewall Jackson, mm-hmm. because these are monuments to racism. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, Germany had some places where there were statues to Hitler. We, we would think, well, they would be within their rights and really responsibility to take those statues down. Mm-hmm. But from the perspective of a, of a Southern white and even a very progressive Southern white who genuinely, truly, actively loves black people. Mm-hmm. It's not just about race. Right. It's about identity. And, but I, I say all that to say that narrative is both, it creates cohesion, but it also creates division between people. Mm-hmm. So Southern, a Southern white who has regular conversations with his friends about the Civil War is not going to understand why uh, Baltimore Black wants him to take down his statue of Robert E. Lee. He's not going to be sympathetic to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes a divisive issue. It becomes something over which people will become hostile. You know, and and because it's a threat to their identity. Yeah, it is. Narratives exist in the minds of people, and it, it sometimes we're blind to it and so it becomes a part of our culture our worldview like we talked about Mm -hmm. so these are potent things right well and these narratives are perpetuated by people with a political agenda so if I if I want people to vote for me I have to be the hero I have to be the liberator I have to be the defender there has to be an antagonist and that would go to do my point that we're wired for story that you know we have story seems to be the basis of thought it's the way we construct memories it's how we dream your dreams are not just a random set of images clicking through like a slideshow they're a story they may be weird stories <laughs> but there's, there's some sort of a narrative happening that we are wired for story and but it's so wound into our identity into our nature that when people get, grab a hold of it and manipulate it. So we talk about make America great again. That's not just, you know, hey kids, let me tell you a story about America. That has a political agenda, doesn't it? People don't wear the hats just because it was a nice story. Right. Because there's something behind it that they're identifying with. To, identifying with. It's an identity mm-hmm. story. And they're like, that's my story, or I want it to be my story. Or right. I want that story to be true, so we're going to vote for Trump. Well, or whoever. they believe yeah. in the, they believe in the protagonist, the hero in that story, who happens to be Donald Trump. In that case, and we need that, and we want that. But somebody on the other side is going to say, "Well, this guy's um, a fascist," or yeah, they're this guy's tell the enemy story. of my story. Right, <laughs> right. And, so, and your, so your hero is my villain. Exactly. You know? <laughs> and now, I mean, it, it, how could we ever? have a civil dialogue about anything if a priori um, someone who wearing a MAGA hat is a racist 
a priori. Like, you don't know them. You haven't met them. You don't know why they're in favor of Trump. Um, but you know that they are a racist and that they hate immigrants and that, you know, they're a white nationalist, whatever. You know that already. Uh, I just saw a video of a lady on a plane and she sat down next to this young man and he had a Trump shirt on. And um, she turns to him and she's just railing on him. You know, she's just like, how can you be for him? You're anti-science. He denies climate change. It's like denying gravity. What, do you not believe in gravity? I mean, she just jumps right over to this guy is a, is a climate change denier because he has a Trump shirt on, but she hasn't had a conversation with him. She gets herself thrown off the plane. And when she does, what's ironic is, is probably most people on the plane are not Trump supporters, or at least 50% of them. But when she leaves, they applaud <laughs> because her hostility is just, it's alienating. But she's so steeped in her narrative, she can't see outside of it. I mean, her husband's over there, like, embarrassed. But she's so steeped in her narrative that the idea that she is not the hero and that he is not the villain, that they're both just people who have their own opinions and are wrong on some things and right on some things, that can't occur to her. So she, without hesitation, without restraint, can lay into him, you know, and if it were permissible, maybe even perpetrate physical violence against somebody else because they aren't sympathetic. It's not a sympathetic person over there. This person is an embodiment of evil. Um, so, so we've established that um, everyone has their their own stories. We're mm -hmm. consciously or subconsciously feeding ourselves or being fed these stories, these narratives sometimes. Yeah. So taking this next level, the meta narrative, like in your example about the two mm -hmm. people on the plane, um, that woman came in, saw the Trump shirt, and she jumped into this story about you know, what she thought Trump supporters were. Right. But maybe there's there's a, a bigger story. Two yeah. people on a plane just trying to go home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Or, or just, yeah, they're humans and they want to live. Um, and, and so however you cast that or that people deserve to be at least silently left alone, uh, even if you don't have to agree with them, affirm them or respect them, uh, these would all be sorts of things that would, would kind of mitigate that. Um, but the reason that we need a meta uh, narrative, and I think the, what happened was in, so we get back to the, the cleavers and all of that, right? But, but at one point in America's history, everybody agreed with that narrative because no one's going to get elected by saying that's not the way to be. So let's just go back in time just to 1995 and Bill Clinton, um, is advocating for and finally passes the defense, the defense of marriage act. Bill Clinton mm -hmm. passes, you know, like, I don't know what was an amendment or something that said marriage is between a man and a woman because everybody politically agreed with that. You know, let's say 80% of America, 75% of America. So whether you were a Democrat or Republican, you, you bought that narrative. It, it kind of served as a meta narrative for America. What's ironic about that is if you really look back through American history, um, it wasn't until the early 1950s, late 1940s, that this narrative of the nuclear family, the, uh, the Cleavers and the Nelsons and all of that began to be dominant, really. And, and the idea of uh, 
so the motto in God we trust, um, the addition of one nation under God, that was in the 1950s. We think America has always been this God guns and glory or whatever, you know, family oriented kind of a nation. It really hasn't been. Uh, we were a lot more individualistic, populistic. Uh, we, but as communism became a nuclear power in our minds, we needed that cohesion. We needed to have a narrative to work against the communist narrative, you know. So where, where there was a, a narrative that said property ownership is bad and that um, religion is bad and all of that, then we needed something that said, no, religion is the underpinning of society and that capitalism is inherently God's will. And, and how all that changed. But that wasn't, a, that's been very recent, but the narrative became, took hold to the point that we assumed it was true. All that to say is that we had a meta-narrative that it served somewhat for cohesion, but it was also in response to somebody else's narrative. Um, when we get to, is there a, so the question is, is there a narrative that is worthy of taking meta-narrative status globally? Or is that, as postmodernists would say, uh, a, a power move? Right. The gospel is a, is, makes that kind of meta-narrative claim. It does. The postmodernist rejects it for that very reason. Yes. Because that's evil to impose your narrative on others. Exactly. Exactly. So w what we have to ask is, is that a legitimate critique of the gospel to say that it is a power move that it is oppressive or whatever to call people to adopt it. I would say that we need a meta narrative for two reasons. One narrative helps society function in a way that nothing else can. If we don't have a shared narrative, we can't assume what the other person will do. So if, mm -hmm. if all of us have our own personal narrative, but we don't have a shared narrative, I don't know that you won't, hijack an airplane you know 9-11 the policy in place for the airline was if somebody wants to take control of the plane let them have it why because we assumed that people weren't going to crash the stinking thing into a building that was our narrative <laughs> but but radical muslims have a different narrative and that crashing a plane into a building is a good thing we, we just assume that's not in the range of possibility so if somebody pulls a box cutter a relatively you know, non-threatening weapon. Three really strong guys, they, you might cut them a little bit, but they're gonna rip your head off and stomp you out, you know, if you have a box cutter on a plane. So, but if you just pull a box cutter on one person, say, I'm gonna kill this person if you don't let me take control of the plane, well, the policy was, let them have it. So they let them have it. Why? Because we assumed that everybody shared a narrative with us and they didn't, and we were, we were wrong in that. So we need, we need a narrative a shared narrative for society to work. Otherwise things get real complicated and you have to have TSA and you have to drop every, you know, you have to throw away all the liquids in your bag that are over three ounces and you have to take your shoes off and all this stupid stuff. Why? Because we don't have a shared narrative. Now we have to have enforced laws that are imposed in the minutia on every person. Why? Because we can't share the assumptions that are based on a shared narrative that mm -hmm. people are valuable, that life is worth keeping and 
that all of that's gone now we can't assume it life becomes very complicated if we don't have a shared narrative um, we need a narrative we need a shared narrative um, and there really is no substitute for that if we hope for society to continue on so it's not so much whether we're going to have a meta narrative in the global village whether that's something that we're going to have it's just which one is worthy mm -hmm. to become the meta narrative and we're seeing that play out in current events you know we're seeing this sort of clash of meta narratives western liberal values um and the western democracies are aligning against the uh the communist and fascist uh meta narrative sure um and so that to illustrate your point yeah or or maybe it is democracy versus authoritarianism mm -hmm. um but putin and uh, go back to the opening um ceremony of the soho winter games you will see putin's narrative depicted he he tells a story about the greatness of the USSR and its fall and how it's undermined by the West and how by rising from the ashes it will become the dominant force. Putin is not so much, I mean, he is not just an autocrat. He's a nationalist. He's a hyper-nationalist. And his banner is Russia overall. Mm -hmm. And if it means killing civilians and stuff like that, then so be it. He's got a narrative. He, but he has a narrative. And so, but if we can't, share his narrative if if we don't agree russia overall we're gonna have world war three i mean that's just how it is uh, china has a narrative that and it's more of a racial narrative that the Hmong people are are the kind of the pinnacle the Hmong, Hmong chinese kind of that han? han yeah that's it i don't know why i said <laughs> the, Hmong. The, the Hmong, they do not think han. it's the pinnacle okay. The Han, uh, yeah, thank you. Someone from the East is helping me, even though I'm Chinese. Anyway, uh, so they think that this is the these are the people. Like, if you are, uh, I was talking to a guy, and his his wife is is ethnically Han Chinese, and he was saying that she can't go, she couldn't go to the mainland because she would be kidnapped because they don't they don't recognize her nationality or her national origin they don't recognize that she's primary english speaker that she was born in the u.s they only recognize that she's han chinese and that means she belongs to china now that's a scary thought if china becomes a dominant force in the world it it means that it means ethnic cleansing i i hate to say it yeah well it's like my uyghur friend uh, uh, on the flip side he uh, and his relatives have to be careful about flying in and out of China right. because they could be detained exactly. because they're Uyghurs. Well, and the Hmong, back to the Hmong, they were Hmong, greatly yeah. displaced. We have a lot of them, you know, here in the area for that, yeah. that very reason. So. Right, and and so that's that's a scary thought. But but all that to say is, is so without a meta narrative that transcends Russia overall, that transcends Han Chinese are the best, um, that and it can't be Western liberalism. You know, we, the, the irony of, of Western liberals is that they, uh, because there isn't a meta narrative that's compelling behind it, that they just have assumed values. Which is why nationalism is on the rise in the United States, I right. think. Um, not, 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 not Western liberal values, but nationalism. Right. Um, so certainly secularists in the West believe that 
the meta narrative of classical liberalism and science and progress, um, the Enlightenment notions, they, they, they still hold out some hope that that will serve effectively as a meta narrative that can right. keep us to keep us at peace and flourishing. Right. Well, and, and the narrative, if there is one for them, is that as people become more developed, more civilized, they will agree with Western liberal values. Um, and, and so what there is this kind of a shock when they discover that other people don't share that. They're, they're like, well, we're an industrialized world and there's education. And, and if somebody violates those principles, they're like, how? How did this happen? And, uh, it's it, like when Trump won, there was this shock that people in America didn't agree with Western liberalism or at, at least this vision of America as much more liberal and accommodating. Um, I think that was what caused a lot of the fear among, you know, there's these kind of depictions of, of very liberal people weeping in the streets and having these uh, campuses had to have counseling and it, it wasn't that Trump was president. It was the discovery that the people around them were much more, in their terms, backward than they thought they were. That they shared a country with people who were very regressive in their minds. Um, and, and so that, but if you assume your values and you assume all good people agree with you, there's no bridge. That, that when you discover that they don't agree with you, but you don't have a story to tell them, that they that they can buy into then they can't hear it and honestly i think putin if you were to try to convince him of secular western liberal values he would hear elitism he would hear uh you know conspiracy among people in the west to suppress other countries other points of view and he certainly wouldn't adopt those just because you're like shame on you mm -hmm. that doesn't change anybody's minds okay so we're not going to have time to get into how the gospel is a meta narrative that can um address the these deep human needs for a story mm -hmm. uh and identity and, and community but let's begin let's at least like pivot and begin begin yes state our hypothesis okay so the, the hypothesis is that it, you know, it will fulfill that because the weakness of meta narratives is on one hand uh, that they are um, perhaps too vague to bring cohesion. That would be a, a very weak meta narrative. So I would say Western liberal values are based on a meta narrative. It's just based on one that is not compelling enough to pull everyone in, as has been demonstrated. The, the other side is that if it is, if it is so compelling that it becomes divisive in that um, we begin to suppress others and, and force them to conform to it. Um, and so this picture of the nuclear family and all that is compelling. Um, at the same time, it, it created some oppression and, and stuff to people. So what I would say is that the gospel is able to both pull people together uh, into community and to mitigate uh, the hostilities and the device division, but it is also able to liberate people on an individual and a cultural basis so that they can become fully realized and rather than suppressed. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, let me give you, for instance, where the gospel goes into, say, a developing culture, a two-thirds world culture, whatever you want to call it. Um, Let's say that Islam goes into the northern part of of this developing country, and the gospel, not Christendom, but the gospel goes into the southern part. So, and, and let's just say that that entire country is pretty homogenous originally. What you will find is, is that when Islam takes hold, the, the culture will change in every way. It has to, you know, Sharia law, the change in the way people dress, um, certainly praying five times a day, architecture will change, um, art will change, everything will have to conform to an Islamic vision. In the South, what you will discover is that maybe there will be church buildings and stuff like that. And again, I'm not talking about Christendom. I'm just talking about if people in the South come to embrace the idea that God loves them, that they're sinners, that Jesus died for their sins, he rose on the third day, he's coming back. That's it. What you will find is that there will be that that culture will not be significantly changed in terms of its superficial nature, like its dress or its art or whatever, but it will be changed in terms of its shared ethos, that there will be a concern for people as individuals, that there will be a liberation of people to to grow and to seek progress and, and stuff like that, that that those will be very different outcomes because the gospel does not prescribe. By its very nature, the gospel insists on diversity. When Paul came to preach the gospel in the first century, you know, we get to Ephesians chapter 3, around verse 4 through 6. He says that when you read, you will understand my, you will perceive my understanding of the mystery. The mystery is that the Gentiles are heirs together with the Jews. Now, that that was an unnecessary complication. If all Paul wanted to do was to tell people that Jesus is the Messiah, to insist that Gentiles be allowed in as Gentiles mm-hmm. really was the reason he was persecuted throughout his life. Mm-hmm. It was, and it also really made it very hard for these, for these communities to come together. A lot of the, the strife and the trouble that happened within these congregations was because you had such a diverse group that we're trying to become one. And yet that's what the gospel insists upon. And that's why I say it is the worthy meta-narrative because it insists that people come and retain their cultural distinctives and gather around something higher. So They retain their cultural distinctives and yet they lay them down as, uh, as their gods. Exactly. So in, uh, let's bring it up to modern day and say that what if we were Paul today? We would insist that Black Lives Matter advocates, people who are advocates of critical race theory, would go to church with Southern whites who still think that Robert E. Lee was a hero. Mm-hmm. And, and how can they do that? Well, because their individual concerns are subservient to the gospel, that they can embrace one another in love because of the common ground that they have and that that common ground is is so much higher than their individual political and social concerns and relativizes them and maybe causes you to um, question them right and rethink them right change them over time well and you get to see the other side as human as your brother you know it's people critique 
Paul in the New Testament because he didn't liberate the slaves, but he really did, just not in his generation. You know, this letter to Philemon, and he says, Receive Onesimus, your slave, back, not as a slave, but as a brother. I mean, the song, O Holy Night, Chains Shall He Break, for the slave is our brother. You know, the, the guy, whoever wrote that, understood the revolutionary significance of it. So slave and master can be in the same congregation in the Greco-Roman world. Why? Because 50% of the people there are slaves that Aristotle taught that people are born slaves because they're inferior. It's, it would be, have been very hard to change that narrative in one generation. But to insist that they come together in one congregation, that they sit at a table as equals, and that the master has a master in heaven and that the slave is God's free man, to flip it ideologically in the story, it, it retained the cultural distinctives, it retained the social necessities, but it also undermined them in ways that were good. Mm-hmm. Well. All right. That's a great awesome. place to end. Boom. We'll continue this next week. Thank Mic you, everyone. Mic drop since we're holding them. Boom. Yeah. <laughs>